and uh, welcome today to worship. Before we jump into today's message, we want to celebrate and recognize uh, one of our most beloved staff people at Grace, and he is retiring from ministry after 50 years of pastoral ministry. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Yeah, that's great. You're going to do a lot of clapping later on, let me tell you. Doug and Bev, would you come out, please? Uh, Doug Nelson is the gentleman that I'm talking about, and he comes today with Bev. They always serve together in ministry as an amazing, amazing team. Come on out. Come on out. Come on out. Oh. Now, I'm going to ask them to share with us uh, in just a moment uh, how it feels to come to this incredible milestone, and God has blessed them through these, all these years. But let me tell you just a little bit uh, about Doug and Bev. I could never get it all, of course. I've just got to touch a few highlights. Um, as I said, they've served together for over 50 years now in pastoral ministry. Among those places, Doug served as pastor of Westerlo Baptist. He's pastored in Puerto Rico, in Vietnam, and other places. One of the things that I appreciate most about Doug is his humility. Ten years ago, when he came on staff at Grace, we really didn't have a pastoral uh, spot at that time and a need, but he was willing to serve for a year and a half as a custodian on the staff. That's a pretty humble position, I think you'd agree. And he served faithfully there before he was able to come on, actually serving as a pastor on our staff. Through these years, they have been on many mission trips, and as I indicated, have served in cross-cultural ministry contexts in numerous places. These guys have taken 13 mission trips to the country of India alone to minister to pastors and their wives there. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, and uh, they have two children, Tim, who's married to Christine, and Kathy, who's married to Mike. Their children, their spouses are all Christians, their grandchildren all Christians. This is just an incredible godly legacy here that uh, it, God has given to this family. Now, Doug has also uh, been uh, active in hospital visitation in the church. He's visited many of you when you've had operations or gone through difficult times. Uh, these guys have a huge heart for mentoring young adults. And one of the things I'm most excited about is as they retire, they're really going to refire, if you know what I mean. And they're going to keep right on worshiping at grace, serving at grace, continuing with the mentoring relationships they have. I could go on and on all day. Another thing, let me say another thing I love about these guys. Here's something that I admire about you, and that is, you hardly think of one without the other. Do you know what I mean? When you say Doug, you think of Bev. When you say Bev, you think of Doug. It's always Doug and Bev, Bev and Doug. They serve as a team together, okay? So here's the bottom line, folks. Standing before you today is sort of the epitome of what Christianity is supposed to be. Here they are, Doug and Bev Nelson. We really mean that, guys. We really mean that. It's amazing. So now for the big question. How does it feel 
to be wrapping up 50 years of pastoral ministry. Okay, I feel humbled as well as thankful that God has called me into pastoral ministry for the past 50 years. And I feel blessed that the past 10 years of the 50 have been right here at Grace, serving with you guys. Oh, amen. As for the next 50 years, (laughs) I hope to continue, as you said, to worship with you guys and to take opportunities as you make them available to continue to serve side by side to the glory of God. And we also hope to be able to do some writing to be an encouragement to others who are brave enough to read whatever we write. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. I hope hope you will do that writing. And uh, you're so much wisdom here. We hope you'll put some of it down, at least on paper, so you can just continue that ripple effect of your lives. We also feel incredibly grateful for God's faithfulness for so many years that it actually makes it very easy to trust God because of his faithfulness. And then also we really want to embrace the next season of our life with great joy and expectation. But we also want to take the opportunity to thank all of you who prayed for this man as he's gone through the heart surgery and the recovery. Here's the answer to your prayers. And we've just been so very grateful for your (laughs) love and care. (laughs) To God be the glory. That is awesome. Listen, we want to present you with a plaque. Now, we're going to be uh, celebrating after the 11 o'clock service. Uh, The 11 o'clock service on Sunday, there's going to be a celebration out in the lobby at Latham. There'll be uh, cupcakes, refreshments out there, and it'll be a time for you to come by and say congratulations to Doug and Bev. But we want to present you with this plaque, among some other things we're going to do. We want to present you with this plaque. It simply says, upon your retirement, Doug Nelson, and it says, in recognition of your faithful service to the Lord, to whom, when he asked, whom shall I send, you humbly replied, send me. And it goes on and on with much appreciation and gratitude. Your church family, Grace Fellowship Church. We'd like to present this to you, Doug. That's awfully heavy, man. (laughs) It's like lifting weights there, all right? All right. Would you guys join me one more time in just celebrating Doug and Bev Nelson on this milestone in their lives? The Bible says give honor to whom honor is due. Here they are, folks. We honor you. We honor you, Doug and Bev. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Praise be to God. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of that uh, celebration and uh, just recognizing these two amazing, amazing servants of God. Well, we're going to take a moment here to get adjusted and get some things in place, but I want to go ahead and kind of uh, uh, begin to talk. You would expect that from me, wouldn't you? Go ahead and begin to talk. Thank you, sir. And uh, today we come to the second most requested topic uh, that you voted on, and that is the whole question of if God is powerful, why does he allow tragedy and suffering? You know, by the way, just several years ago, there was a national survey where people were asked, if you could ask God one question and you knew he would answer you, what would it be? And the question that the national survey revealed 
was, why is there suffering in this world? It's really a question on a lot of people's minds. By the way, there was one statistical quirk I found in that survey that was kind of interesting. Uh, The study revealed that married people were much more interested in knowing why they're suffering than non-married people. I, I don't understand why. I'm just throwing that out there. That's what the survey said. Now, you know, it would be a lot more easy, wouldn't it? Pleasurable to have this discussion in an ivory tower somewhere. Just keep it philosophical and academic. But the problem is we can't do that because suffering is personal. We wonder things like, why did my parents have to get a divorce? Why in a home where I should have been valued and protected was I abused? Uh, Why did the only person I've ever really loved just walk away and abandon me? Why Why was my son killed by that drunk driver? And can you please tell me, Pastor, what God worth worshiping would allow my child to die a slow, excruciating death from leukemia? There are no easy answers to those questions. Theologians have struggled with the question of pain for centuries. And it's easy to give glib answers about suffering unless it's your job that's being eliminated. Unless it's your marriage that's falling apart. Unless it's your child that is rebelling. But if you're living in those situations, those answers seem to be shallow at best and possibly even insulting. One survivor of the Holocaust put it like this, if this is the best God can do, why doesn't he resign and let someone more competent take his place? You may go, whoa, I'd never say it like that. But let's be honest, when it comes to tough times, we begin to wonder what kind of a God is really up there. So, here's a question for you. Why didn't God create a world with no tragedy and suffering? You ever wondered that? I mean, come on. If we were in charge, in our minds, we would have done things very differently, right? I mean, I'll tell you one thing. Bad things would not be happening to good people if I were in charge. You better believe it. And the world we created, we would have a world where bad things only happen to bad people, right? I saw a news story t- some time back that it was about a Czechoslovakian woman. It came, uh, her name was Vera Sermak. She was from Prague in Czechoslovakia. And she found out her husband was cheating on her. And she was so distraught by that news that she contemplated both murder thought about killing him, and suicide. She, she chose the latter, however, blindly leaping out of their third-story apartment window. It was way up there. But in a wild twist of fate, the story says, she incurred only minor injuries, although she jumped from so high because she landed on her husband, who happened to be walking by on the street below, and killed him. Now, I like that. That's the kind of world I would create. 
You do something bad, you get struck by lightning, or at least by a flying check woman or something. That's the kind of world I want. And if we were God, only good things would happen to good people. Good kids would always get straight A's. Three-year-olds would never climb into gorilla pits like happened this week in Cincinnati. And even if they did, it would just be fun. And everything would turn out great. It would be a win-win. Parents who want to have children would always have them. By twos and threes, they would have them. Faithful spouses would never have to suffer. They would always have fairy tale marriages. Lonely people would always have an abundance of relationships. For every drop of rain that fell, a flower would grow. That's how it would be if we were in charge of the world. So, why didn't God create a world with no tragedy and suffering? Short answer He did. He did. Genesis 1 says God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And if you read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, that's what you'll see over and over. God looked at the creation. He said either it's good or very good. There was no tragedy and suffering in the world God created. It was awesome and fantastic, very good. So if God is not the author of suffering, where does tragedy and suffering come from? Well, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot some of these things down if it's helpful for you in learning. Some suffering is simply the result of our own sin. In other words, you might want to write down in your notes cause and effect. Or you might want to write down, we reap what we sow. That is a huge principle at work in this world today. So, if we steal or lie, we may lose our job and we'll certainly lose our reputation. We may go to jail. If we're promiscuous, we can get sexually transmitted diseases and our marriage may, it will likely fall apart. If we overeat, if we smoke, if we abuse alcohol, if we abuse our bodies in other ways, there will be physical suffering and consequences. It, it's just the way it works. G God has created us in love. He's told us how the world works best. When we go against that, there's a law of reaping and sowing at work. And so many times it's just as simple as that. We simply are reaping what we've sown. But that certainly, certainly, hear me, does not explain it all. Secondly, some suffering is the result of others' sin. As I like to say, often we get caught in the backwash of other people's sin. Some of you listening to my, me right now, you're wondering, am I suffering here in this thing I'm, I'm I'm feeling this pain and I'm going through this agonizing time. Is it because of my sin? Likely it's not. It may very well be because of the sin of others. You're mugged on the street. You're suffering because of someone else's sin. Your child rebels or makes self-destructive choices. 
You're suffering because of someone else's sin. Your mate is unfaithful or abusive or crotchety. You're suffering because of someone else's sin. Now, this is not scientific, but my guess is that 95% of the suffering in the world is simply the result of our human choices. For instance, people often look at the famines that occur regularly in Africa and other places. And they say, where's God in all of this? Why doesn't God do something? Can't God hear the screams of babies that are starving to death? Friend, that's not God's fault. The truth of the matter is, God has given us so much food on this planet We have enough food for every man, woman, and child to have at least 3,000 calories a day easily. The truth is, millions of tons of humanitarian aid, food products, that are sent are stolen often by corrupt governments and sold on the black market. That's sinful human choice. And people go right on suffering. Often, the famine or the crisis itself was created by human sin, the displacement of people groups who are literally driven out by war and strife. It's because of our own selfishness and our own irresponsibility that people are starving when God has provided us plenty of food. (laughs) I mean, in fact, how can it be God's fault when often the best-selling books in America are on dieting and how to lose those extra pounds? God has given us free will, and with your free will, you can look at your hand and you can say, I can take this hand and take a gun in it and shoot someone, that's my choice, or I can take this same hand and I can feed someone who's starving. Choice is up to me. But what I cannot do with intellectual integrity is take this hand take a gun and shoot someone and then say, why does God allow evil and suffering? Dude, he gave you free will. So to blame God for so much of the evil in the world is absolutely ridiculous. It's the result of human choice many times. Third, some suffering is the result of satanic attack. The Bible makes clear that Satan has limited domain in this world. He's actually called in Scripture the prince of the power of the air. Also, he's called the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And Jesus said about him that he's come to steal and kill and destroy. Job felt the brunt of that. He suffered bankruptcy. The simultaneous death of 10 children, he suffered suffered physical misery. That wasn't because of Job's sin. He was blameless and upright according to the text. Not sinless, but he was a very upright guy. It wasn't because of other sin. It was because Satan was attacking. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul called his physical problems a messenger from Satan. God permitted those things to happen to Paul and to Job, but he did not cause them. So often, we're literally suffering, and I think this is many times true of strong believers because of satanic attack. 
Fourth, a lot of suffering comes because we live in a fallen world. Paul makes the strange statement in Romans 8, 22, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the problem of suffering goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And as a result of Adam and Eve's choices, human sin was introduced, and since then, the world has been out of kilter. It will be that way until Jesus our Lord returns and that curse is fully reversed and eliminated. But until that day, we live in a fallen world. Now let me tell you what that means. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That means that the same knife that will cut bread will also cut your finger off if you're not careful. That means that tornadoes In this fallen, broken world that's in utter disorder, tornadoes will destroy church buildings as well as brothels. Just count on it. It means that the force of gravity that holds me on the earth will not be suspended if I fall out of a tree. And so I I may get hurt. Most often, God is not causing problems but he never promised our exemption from them. In fact, Jesus actually said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. So what have we said so far? Let's be clear in our minds. God created a world without tragedy and suffering, but he also gave us free will. And in our free will... We chose to rebel, and that led to an enormous amount of of sin and its consequent destruction. You say, but pastor, pastor, why did God give us free will? Because he's love, and real love always has a choice. I think instinctively, instinctively we know that's true. I don't want my wife Debbie loving me because God pre-programmed her like a robot to automatically love me and be faithful to me. Uh, That wouldn't be meaningful at all. I want her to love me because of the other three billion plus guys on the planet that she could have chosen, and she could have chosen any of them. She chose the guy with the southern accent. That's what makes it meaningful to me. I choose to link my life with him for the rest of my life. That's love. And it's meaningful because she had the freedom not to choose me, but she chose me. Now, maybe you've wondered, well, why did, couldn't God have seen all this crazy stuff was going to happen? Couldn't God have seen that we were going to rebel and sin was going to be introduced? It was going to lead to all this chaos and tragedy and pain? Couldn't he see that ahead of time? Of course he did. Well, why did he go ahead and create the world? Probably for pretty much the same reason that those of us who were parents decided to have children. Before we chose to have children or adopt children... Didn't we know, parent? didn't we know, those of you who are parents today, didn't we know that there was a real chance, we're taking a risk here, there's a real chance that our children are going to experience serious tragedy, suffering, pain in this world. Didn't we know that? Yeah, I knew that. Deb knew that. 
And didn't we know that our kids could rebel against us and break our hearts? Yep. And yet we wouldn't have had kids anyway. Why? Because we also knew that while that risk was real, we knew that there was also tremendous potential for joy and blessing and a meaningful relationship. Well, the same is true for God. God knew sin would mar the world, but he also knew that some of us would choose to love him and love others. We'd spend eternity with him in heaven, and that possibility that you might respond to his love and love him back, even though that choice cost him the suffering of the cross, God said, it's worth it. It's worth it to me to have the joy of a relationship with you. Wow. Now, frankly, that helps me a lot. What we've said so far helps me a lot just kind of understand the sources, the antecedents, the roots of suffering and tragedy in this world. But you know what? If I'm really suffering today, and so many of you are in a season right now of deep pain, if I'm suffering, honestly, that doesn't take my pain away, does it? What I really want, what I really need today is some hope. Is there any redemption at the end of this? Is there any reason to believe there's a purpose here? Is there anything I've got to look forward to? I, I like what Romans 5, 5 says. It says, hope does not disappoint. So much of life does. So many relationships do. But hope does not. How can that story become our story? How can we get in on a little of that hope that does not disappoint? Well, there's a place in Scripture where God directly answers this question. It involves the man Job. And in Job chapter 1, we read the following. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. The Bible describes Job not just as a good man, but as a great man. And yet, as I alluded earlier, mentioned earlier, he loses his wealth. He loses his health. He loses his children. His wife says, dude, you're so miserable. Why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. And Job asked the question. This is what the book of Job is all about. It centers around this question. Job asked, why is this happening to me? And you know what I think? I think when he asked that question, he's speaking for every one of us who has ever hurt. He's speaking for the father holding a flower that he's taken off of his daughter's casket. He's speaking for that dear couple who's tried for years to have children. He's speaking for that wife who finds a note on the kitchen counter that says, I've left, don't try to contact me, it's over. Job is speaking for all of us, and God actually answers him in Job 38. Would you look at what God says? Have you ever once commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? By the way, the rhetorical implied answer to all of these questions, and there are dozens of them in this text if you read the whole thing, is no, right? <laughs> no, well, Job, no, I haven't, Lord, no, I haven't. 
Have you ever told the daylight to spread to the ends of the earth, to, the, to end the night's wickedness? Has the location of the gates of death been revealed to you? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Or tell me about the darkness. Where does it come from? Can you find its boundaries or go to its source? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. And finally, Job has a chance to respond in Job 40, and he says, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. You know what God basically is saying to Job here? Cliff notes, I'm God and you're not. I don't know how that strikes you, but somehow, somehow, that is strangely comforting to me. Some years ago, when our son Chase was five years old, he and Allie were playing downstairs in the, in the basement of a home of some friends of ours that were in our small group, and, and they were playing with their children down in the basement. And Chase uh, got a strange injury. Apparently, he was going down one of these little toy tyke uh, tot slides uh, head first, as kids will do, and, and as he hit the bottom uh, of that slide, got a, got a cut on his left eyelid. It was cut all the way through. He could literally see through the eyelid, and uh, you could see his eye through the cut. So uh, we immediately took him to Albany Medical Center emergency room, and we waited for a while. And when we were finally able to see a plastic surgeon, uh, he explained the dilemma, and he explained our options. The concern was for Chase's future. If we stitched it up, it would be painful and traumatic. It would begin with a shot in the eye, which would, he said would be the worst part. And then there would be the more trauma that would come through the repeated. There would have to be several stitches, and so the tugging and pulling of that as it goes through the eyelid. But the concern was if you don't stitch it up, it could really leave an ugly, gaping wound, and it would make him self-conscious of this for the rest of his life. And furthermore, this defective eyelid could actually cause damage to the eye later on. Wow. It was a tough dil dilemma, and we deliberated, and we decided to get it stitched up. Now, if you can imagine, there are few things more delicate than an eyelid. And the plastic surgeon said to me, now, Dad, this is your job. You've got to hold him down. He said, there's very little room for error here, and so he's got to be perfectly still. You've got to hold him down. Do you think you can do that? I swallowed hard and said, I'll try. And he was squirming and in great distress. He had been so calm all the way and was very brave throughout the whole thing, but this was painful and scary. And I had to stand over him and literally hold him down as the plastic surgeon gave the shot in the eyelid and then began the process, and I'm right over his face as he's stitching this up. And he's squirming and in great distress. It's one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do, not just as a parent, 
but as a person. I would have gladly taken his place. Gladly. I love my son so much, I would have gladly endured that for him, but I knew that in the long run, it would be better for him. And today, both he and we are glad we did it. By the way, about two days ago, uh, Chase was home, and uh, I said, Chase, I'm going to mention that story this weekend. And I said, can I see your eyelid? It was the left eye. And I looked and looked, and I could not even really see any evidence that there had been a cut there. Now, as his dad, I knew Chase would be wondering, why is my dad allowing this to happen? Why would, he knew I wasn't doing it, but why would he allow this to happen? And so I want to wrap the remainder of this message today around four things that I shared with Chase as we went through that ordeal together. And I, I wonder if God, for those of you who are suffering I wonder if God would want to say some of these things to you, especially if you're in the middle of a huge crucible in your own life. The first thing I said to Chase was, you're not alone. I kept saying to him, son, I'm right here, buddy. I'm right here with you. You're not alone. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. Some of you need to hear that because you're feeling a little abandoned People have let you down, and you wonder if you're really all alone in this. I'm telling you, you're not alone. One of the greatest truths of Scripture is that God has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. We see that illustrated powerfully in Daniel 3 and the lives of these three young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who got thrown in a fiery furnace because they refused to compromise their faith and bow down to an idol. And verse 24 of that chapter reads, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. God was with them when they needed him the most. The first thing I declare to you, if you're really hurting today, you're not alone. One of the last promises Jesus made before he left this earth was I will send you a comforter, the paraclete. He's going to come right alongside you. And when you're going through the hardest things that life can dole out, things you don't even understand, God the Holy Spirit is going to be right there with you in the midst of it all. The second thing I said to Chase is, I know how you feel. I'm hurting with you. And believe me, I was. I had broken out into a sweat. As I was experiencing this, now I hadn't had that exact injury happen to me, but I was being honest when I assured Chase that I know what pain feels like and I'm hurting with you. And you know what I've discovered in life? When you're going through really hard times, one of the most awesome things is to actually talk to someone who's been through something just like that and you know that they're real. They really know what it's like to hurt. 
Hebrews 4 says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. You know, the ultimate answer to suffering and tragedy is not an explanation. It's the incarnation. I'll tell you, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't be very eager to suffer a God that was just off and aloof and never tasted the salt of human tears. The Word of God says that our God tabernacled among us. He knows what it's like to stub his toe. He knows what it's like to experience the worst, the worst that human beings can dole out. And we have a God who can honestly say, I know how you feel. I've entered your pain. Please get this today. When you hurt, God hurts. Trust me on that. When you hurt, God hurts. Another thing I tried to explain to my son in that painful experience was pain has a purpose. <laughs> I, I, I know that sounds a little philosophical, but I wanted Chase to know that there was a reason I was allowing this to happen. Even at the age of five, at his maturity level, he probably didn't understand my explanation. But the basic point was to avoid unnecessary problems in the future, I needed for him to endure something really unpleasant right now. And while every situation is different, God is always weaving his purpose. Dr. Wayne and Janet Shaw were husband and wife, and they were both professors at Lincoln Christian University some years ago, a beloved couple, great teachers, and uh, they had a child who had Down's syndrome. And so as that word, when that birth happened, when it got around to the faculty and students, they, a bunch of them kind of just called an impromptu prayer meeting to get together and, and pray for the Shaws. And so they all got in a circle, and they prayed these really genuine, heartfelt prayers. And the prayers sounded something like this. Oh, God, be with the Shaws during this sad time. Be with the Shaws during this time of tragedy and pain. God, we don't understand, and so forth and so on. And those were the kinds of prayers that could be heard around that circle. But then it came time, as the prayers went around, for Dr. Bruce Shields to pray. He and his wife, Rosemary, had a teenage son named Jimmy who had Down syndrome. And that prayer group will never forget Dr. Shields' prayer. His prayer went like this. God, I thank you for the joy. I thank you for the joy that can now come into this home that they would have never known otherwise without the birth of this special child. See, he knew that pain had a purpose and God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Now, I know that there are many at Grace right now who would say, it was through a season of pain that I drew back to God again. It was through that ugly, messy, horrible divorce that God broke into my life 
and brought me back to him when I drifted so far away. And friend, the point is God can take the worst thing in your life and turn it into the most important thing. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. He will never, we will never regret that kind of sorrow. That's a pretty radical thought. But could it just be possible that God allows the cancer in order to get us appreciating what is eternal? Could it be, just could it be that God allows the difficult boss in your life in order to teach self-control? Could it be that God allows the unemployment for a time to teach you faith? And what it means to live by faith? Could it be that God would allow a colicky baby to teach us patience? He doesn't cause all things, but he works in the midst of all things for our good and his glory. And we come out on the other side of it looking a little more like Jesus. God will not waste your hurt. But here's the challenge when you're going through it. How do you hang on to God? Boy, that's the question that Habakkuk was facing way back in the Old Testament where there was devastation all around and famine and blight and locusts had stripped the crops. It was disaster. Nothing was turning out right. Listen to what he says, Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stall. Now, remember, this is an agricultural society. This is utter disaster he's describing here. Hopelessness. And he ends it by saying, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. If we were writing, writing that today in 2016... We might say, though I'm unemployed, though I'm brokenhearted by my spouse, though my child is sick, though my portfolio is cut in half, though I had a stroke, though everything in my life is a mess, nevertheless, yes, I'll rejoice in God. Well, there's one final thing I told my son through the pain. I told him, Chase... This will be over soon. The pain will be over soon. Well, I was literally holding him down to get his eyelids stitched up. I said, Chase, man, you are so brave. You're doing great. This is just going to be a couple minutes longer, and we're going to stop, and we're going to get out of here, and we're going to get some ice cream, and we're going to go home, and you can play again. You know what? I wonder, of all the things I told him, giving him something like that to look forward to, if that didn't make the biggest difference of all. In Romans 8, Paul, speaking to people who are going through incredible hardships, says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know what? <laughs> you can endure a lot of pain if you know there's a happy ending, can't you? 
If I were to say to you today, and you had a horrible fear of heights, if I were to say to you, hey, I'll give you $10 if you'll jump out of a plane, you would, of course, say no. You got this horrible fear of heights. You're not about to jump out of a plane. But if I said, I'll give you $10,000 to jump out of that plane, in spite of your fear, I, I might get a couple of takers. But if I said, I will give you a million dollars, and you knew I could make good on that, to jump out of that plane, you know what I think? I think 95% of you would do it. You know, there's a point that you would probably agree to endure the discomfort and the danger for the ultimate benefit. There's a reason to hold on. There's a glory that awaits us. That's the perspective of heaven. It's not to deny the pain down here in this life, but whatever you're going through, friend, listen, if you go through intense pain for 70, 80, 90 years, are you listening to me? 70 years of pain. After you've just had your 7 trillion 879,432,655,768. After you've just had that many years of bliss in heaven and you're just getting started, your 70 years of pain down here will seem like the inconvenience of a flat tire. Revelation 21 says, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. <laughs> there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Wow. No more bloated stomachs. No more anxious waiting rooms. No more tables for one. No more tear-stained divorce papers. No more motionless ultrasounds. No more small caskets. You know what I think? I don't think the question that we're asking today is going to be very important in heaven. God's powerful. Why there's tragedy and suffering. You know what I think a, the more common question will be there? I don't, I don't think it'll be a, a question like, why do bad things happen to good people? I think the question in heaven is going to be, why do things like this happen to bad people like me? Father, help us with Job. To say you are God and I am not. Help us today to celebrate the hope that we have in you. A hope that does not disappoint. And help us to celebrate, Lord, that our worst suffering and tragedy down here will seem so, so incredibly insignificant. Because when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun.
Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen.